Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about this project, you can do so at the website lastbornthewilderness.com. A link to that website is in the description of this episode. And go to that website, you'll find everything I've done up to this point, every episode, every segment I've released. You'll find links to all the social media sites that this podcast is updated regularly on. You'll find links to the one-time donation page if you want to send a small donation. And you'll also find a link to the podcast Patreon page by going to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. You can make very small monthly contributions to the production of this podcast. This is an ad-free sponsor for your production. It relies completely on donations, on contributions from people who appreciate what I'm doing. So for those that are already contributing, that are already have donated, thank you so much for your contribution. Also on the website, you'll find all the various platforms that you can subscribe to this podcast on. I have it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most recently, Radio Public. So please consider going to any of those platforms if those are your preferred platforms to listen to podcasts on and subscribe and listen to this podcast there without any further delay here's the episode episode, I speak with Lise Elliott. Lise is professor of neuroscience at the Chicago Medical School of Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. She is a Chicago native. She received her AB degree from Harvard University, a PhD from Columbia University, and a postdoctoral research fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. In addition to teaching and writing, Dr. Elliott lectures widely on children's brain and gender development. So that's really the focus of this conversation. She's also the author of numerous books. Uh, most recently, she's the author of Pink Brain, Blue Brain, How Small Differences Grow Into Troublesome Gaps, and What We Can Do About It. So I came across Lise online. I was reading on gender and and the biological, or I should say the neurological differences, supposedly, between boys and girls, and the brains of boys and girls, males and females. What Lisa's proposed, and it's actually seemingly somewhat controversial, is that really there's no actual difference between a so-called male or female brain at birth. Children, whether they're born female or male, there are small differences, but generally those differences that we see between so-called male or female brains. Because, you know, we've all heard the story of men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We're so very different. Our brains were completely different. We can't understand each other. We need, you know, all these self-help books and all this crap and therapy in order to even communicate with one another. What she's basically saying is that it's a lot of it's cultural and that the development that boys and girls undergo is pushed 
in the various directions they go in because of cultural reasons. There's cultural factors, major cultural factors that come into play regarding this development process. So we discuss the science behind this, and I just ask her some questions because she's an expert in her field. She knows what she's talking about. To say the very least, she knows exactly what she's talking about. And so it's an interesting topic because I think now we're having these conversations about what being a male or what being a female really is, um, how much of that is actually tied to neurology, tied to what we were born as regarding our genitalia. And I also asked the question towards the end of the interview about transsexual gender identity, right? What can we do to possibly wrap our heads around this phenomenon of people wanting acceptance for being, say, born in a male body, but wanting to be considered a female or the other way around, right? What does that actually mean in the scientific uh, research. What what can we kind of understand about that? Uh, so I discussed that, and I think it's a controversial subject because I think now more than ever there has been a, a blowback, I guess you could say, not blowback, um, a reaction against this type of science and this type of discussion that gender is much more fluid in a lot of ways than we maybe or feel comfortable even discussing sometimes. So it's a really engaging and really interesting interview. I really love this conversation with her, and I really thank her for taking the time for me to ask her some questions regarding her work. If you want to learn more about Lise, you can do so at her website. It's LiseElliot.com. Lise is spelled L-I-S-E. Elliot is E-L-I-O-T. LiseElliot.com. There you'll find all of her work, her articles, her interviews, her Uh, speaking engagements that she's had. I'll provide a link to her book, Pink Brain, Blue Brain. She also has a previous book, What's Going On in There. So she's just done a lot of research into brain development and childhood development, which I find all to be very fascinating. I, I think more than anything, when we talk about how we can affect change in future generations, I think discussing these types of issues is really important because if somebody can get it in their head, that, oh, a lot of the things that we're doing to children are cultural, and they don't have to actually be that way. We don't have to encourage this type of behavior in boys or this type of behavior in girls. We can maybe evolve in some way as a society, as a species, and I think that's really important. So please listen to what Lisa has to say. And uh, again, I'll provide links to all of her work and everything she's done down in the description of this episode. So thank you so much for your attention up to this point. Here's my episode with Lise Elliott. Well, Lise, thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, I came across, I have to admit, the first time I came across your work was an Atlantic article, excuse me. Uh, The Atlantic had a piece that just came out uh, June 25th, and the title of that piece was Are Male and Female Brains Biologically Different? And uh, reading your, it's not written by you, but it's written about you and some of the claims that that you're making um, regarding the the differences or the lack of differences in, in the male and female brain, and and I really like what you're saying because what you're basically pointing to is that biologically, neurologically, the way that the brains are formed prenatally up until after birth and and so on. There's very 
small differences that actually exist. And, and oftentimes in the media, we hear very exaggerated claims, you know, that phrase, uh, men are from Mars, women, women are from Venus. There's this perception that men and, and, and women are so very different from one another that it's in the biology, it's in the physiology of the, the male and female body itself and in the brain. Um, but what you point to is that, in fact, much of those changes in the development of male and female, uh, you know, their, their neurology, their behavior really comes down to um, culture and rearing practices, how children, how children are raised by their parents. And I find this to be really fascinating. So uh, to kind of just get a base here, uh, what are the assumed differences between a male and a female brain, and what are the actual? What is the actual research that you have researched, um, have looked into that actually show what the actual differences are, and what maybe we have more in common than anything regarding our mm-hmm. physiology and our neurology? Yeah. Um, well, anyway, thanks. So, thanks for having me on your your show, and thanks for your interest. Um, there absolutely is. I think if you pulled somebody off a street corner and asked them to talk about men and women's brains, they would say, well, a man's brain is like X, you know, it likes, uh, likes shooting and violence and (laughs) pornography and a woman's brain, women like, uh, gentle things and nurturing. And, you know, we are certainly behaviorally different. And so, the and once we started studying the brain intensively, neuroscience is a relatively new new field. Um, this notion arose that there is such a thing as a male brain and a female brain. There's books about the male brain and the female brain and and their alleged differences. But if really when you read them, it usually boils down to behavior. So there's no question that men and women on average behave differently. You know, we have different interests, we have um, different relational styles on average. Now, for all of these differences, there's tremendous overlap. Um, And particularly when you look at just raw psychological traits, things like uh, verbal skills and empathy and math ability, there's far more overlap between groups of men and groups of women or groups of girls and groups of boys. But... Um, you know, we are certainly a, we have a binary culture, you know, we have, <laughs> there's the men's room and this ladies room. Uh, most people are engaged, involved in heterosexual relationships. You know, we have, uh, when a baby's born, you do a big gender reveal party. It's either a boy or a girl. We don't say it's somewhere in between. So we live, we treat, we treat gender as if it's binary sex, which is the biological uh, root of all this is is basically binary. You either have XX or XY chromosomes, but the brain is not a sex organ. So sex organs are things like ovaries and testes, and biologists have a term to describe when two organs are fundamentally different in males and females. We call that sexual dimorphism, literally two shapes that vary by sex. And unfortunately, because it's kind of got a really sciencey sounding word, terms, sexual dimorphism has been used very broadly to describe male and female brains, even when the differences that researchers are finding are incredibly small. You know, you can find a 5%, 10% difference in the volume of a structure 
and people are calling that sexual dimorphism when, you know, they're, they're just extremely subtle. It's the same shape. It's just a tiny difference in size. So rather than sexually dimorphic, I mean, the male brains and female brains are no more different from each other than the male heart and the female heart, the male kidney and the female kidney. Um, surgeons can actually transplant a heart between sexes if it's the best fit, the best match based on, you know, molecular markers and so on. Um, so uh, this idea that our organs come in, in different sex types really only holds for the sex organs themselves. Um, and you can tell this, I teach neuroanatomy. I'm a, I, I work in a medical school. I teach uh, first and second year medical students all of their brain structures. And I can tell you there are no differences in the structures in males and females. We all have exactly the same subcortical structures, things like the amygdala, hippocampus, thalamus. We all have the same cortical structures, the, the prefrontal cortex, the temporal lobes, and the various parts. And brain imaging studies that have been around now for going on 30 years. This is where we can use MRI to measure active areas of the brain when you do something in the scanner. Those active parts of the brain are the same by and large in men and women. When we are lying there doing a verbal task like identifying rhyming words or doing a math task or a spatial task or even empathy, even recognizing emotion in other people's faces uses the same parts of the brain, the same circuit in males and females. So this idea that we are sexually dimorphic in our neurophysiology also is inaccurate. Now that said, scientists are getting a lot of currency and fame from publishing papers on differences between males and females. So what do I mean by that? If the if the structures are the same and the circuits are the same, well, these are these small statistical differences that if you have 500 men and 500 women, put them in the scanner and give them uh, the same task or even just resting brain activity, you can pick out group differences between males and females. Um, you know, these, these are small statistical differences that by definition require huge populations in order to detect. So, you know, there there are there are differences by sex, which is why when the Atlantic initially put a headline on that article that said there are no biological differences between men and women's brains, I kind of cringed because I knew <laughs> that any neuroscientist would object to that. There are, there are differences. There are papers and papers that are reporting these small differences, but they um they are quite small and thus far have never been linked to a single uh, difference in, in our behavior. So there aren't separate circuits that anybody's identified as far as we know yet. Right. And that, that thing you mentioned about the Atlantic, it's funny because it seems to go in two directions, this phenomenon in, uh, I think, Western media and American media in particular, where there can't be nuance. You can't have, well, there are some subtle differences, but not as much as you may think. It's more like there are no differences biologically, or there are major differences biologically, and there can't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be, um, at least in how this information is, is presented, at least in a headline, um, any nuance. There's no um, subtlety in the language that is used, because like you mentioned, it's it's the it's the amount of attention that, say, a, a, a kind of research is going to get in the media. So they're going to focus on 
you know, the major, seemingly major differences between the male and female brain and how they're able to process or, or uh, analyze information or, or the types of interests and skills that men and women may have yeah. later in life, right? Um, right. So the yeah. reporting is, is as binary as our perceptions of, of male-female difference. It, right. It's all around. Yeah. But I think that's because there there's a lot of currency. Um, uh, unfortunately, scientists and particularly the university press offices, so all of us work at universities that are trying to bring attention to the school. And, you know, one thing they can all relate to is sex or gender differences. And so when a researcher finds those differences, those are the ones that can't tend to get released by the press office and then the media pick them up and and you have this sequential loss of precision in the reporting uh, when it gets out there. But I have to say, you know, I, I always say in my talks that sex differences are sexy. You know, a, a scientist can do a study. Let's say you have 500 men and 500 women and you're just you're not necessarily looking for sex findings at all. You're maybe you're looking at the effects of aging on the brain. Maybe you're looking at the effects of education on the brain, and you happen to have half men and half women. So what you do is you publish your primary study. You look at the effects of aging on the brain, and you get a nice publication. And then, and then you realize, wow, you know, we have men and women in that study. We can analyze it again and see if there's a sex difference. And then if you find a sex difference, bingo, you get another publication, which in science is gold and the ticket to grants and tenure and so on. So there's there's a selection bias for publishing studies that find a sex difference. And then if you analyze those thousand people and you did not find a sex difference, well, unfortunately, nobody wants to publish there was that there was no male-female difference in this huge study I just did. Uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and no editor will take that for their for their journal. So there's there's almost this Darwinian selection in the scientific literature for positive findings of sex difference and a ignoring of the the negative findings that don't get published. So do you think that that the reasoning for that? I mean, obviously there's the um, the short term gain of getting attention, of getting grants, of getting all those things you just mentioned, but. It, it seems like it's just perpetuating a lot of the stereotypes and myths that surround gender or sex differences in between men and women. And, and that, and that in turn affects how generations of um, uh, like, like how, how people choose to raise their children and how schools choose to teach children. Um, It seems like that the short-term gain of getting more grants, getting more research funding, et cetera, is perpetuating a problem in our culture, and um, and I, I don't know if there's like a, a, a solution to that right now, but it's just something I wanted to, to comment on, which is I think something that you get into, which is that the major differences in how boys and girls develop into adulthood, into their adolescence and into adulthood, much of those differences are subtle at birth and subtle at the at the at the start, but over time because our culture reinforces certain stereotypical ideas of what a, a boy or what a girl is supposed to act like and supposed to be interested in um, those interests. Like, like we, we could discuss, for instance, the, um, the fact that well, I can't remember his name. He, he was working for Google. I think he resigned or got fired, but he was pointing out that the reason why there aren't women in tech is because they're just biologically different and they're not as interested in tech. Um, what would you say to someone like that who is pointing to 
maybe some research that he has that points to some of the biological differences that he may perceive to be dif- regarding the difference between men and women. Right. Well, you're quite right that um, by publicizing findings of sex difference and ignoring findings of sex similarity, uh, we perpetuate in in the popular understanding um, an exaggerated sense of male-female difference. And that's certainly harmful in a society like ours where we're trying to provide equal opportunity and we have equal expectations, say, of fathers and mothers in terms of child rearing, uh, it's going to be difficult to achieve that kind of uh, equality if people have this assumption about hardwired or fundamental differences. And I'd just like to point out that while this is fun and totally common to do for male-female differences, we never do this for racial or ethnic differences. Uh, scientists could break up their data in all kinds of ways, and I'll, I can guarantee that they don't divide out the, the white and black uh, participants in their research and publish uh, brain activity or brain volumes according to those, uh, those characteristics, because people don't want to hear it, understandably, and understand that that kind of research is very divisive. But we don't have that problem with male and female differences because to some degree we like the division. You know, everybody buys into their gender identity and they like their male spaces and female spaces. We like our Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and sororities and fraternities and uh, and all the customs that go with each gender. And so somehow that makes this kind of research more palatable than other uh, group divisions. So that was one thing I wanted to say about that. Right. Now, on the topic of uh, women in STEM uh, and the, um, the Google memo, as you're refer- referring to, which was written by a programmer at Google, at Google named James Damore about a year ago, um, it was an internal memo. Um, and he, I think he was getting frustrated, as some people do, with the the diversity initiatives that Google and many other, almost every major corporation has taken interest in diversity. Certainly our universities are interested in diversity. And in my mind, it's for good reason. We we know that diversity of um, background and opinion um, produces more creative thinking. You know, people come to a problem with a different perspective and they can see a solution that others who've all been in the same kind of rut may not necessarily see. And I think companies also have feel a, a social mission of providing greater opportunity to groups that have been historically disadvantaged. And and women are a group that have been historically disadvantaged in, in the STEM fields. Um, so most, uh, most tech companies are trying to hire more women and trying to make them more comfortable, although that's a challenge. Whenever you're seriously outnumbered, um, you know there there tends to be a token effect on you. But um, anyway, so Google is you know one of the companies that's had efforts to increase diversity, and I think it rubbed James Damore the wrong way. I think he felt like like many white men, that there's now a reverse discrimination against white males. And, you know, it's, it's understandable that they would feel that way. There's all these um, uh, initiatives to bring in everybody but you. You know, there's initiatives to bring in people of color. There's initiatives to bring women in. 
it just would seem unfair, I'm sure, to to white males. Um, but all that assumes that you, you don't really believe there is ongoing discrimination. And so um, that's where, you know, we get a little bit of pushback. So, you know, there, there really is such a thing as implicit bias that uh, we make assumptions about other people based on their gender, their race, etc. And it's hard for people to overcome those hurdles. I mean, I, as I said, I teach medical students and I mean, African-American doctors are notoriously um, denigrated, uh, addressed as if they're the orderly in the room, uh, you know, not respected, not uh, granted the authority of their white peers. And, uh, you know, this is a problem in a diverse society. We've got a long way to go. And um, I think that people who've been in a historically privileged group. I mean, I'm white, and I definitely appreciate the historical privilege that that has granted me. Owe it to uh, the rest of our society to uh, ramp up opportunities for others. So anyway, if but if you have the view that we've already done everything we need to do to help underserved groups, and that now we should just absolutely level the playing field based on raw, you know, test scores and test scores, basically. That's, that seems to be the only objective measure people <laughs> agree on. Um, then, then we're bending backwards to help people that don't deserve it. And you get a little bit aggrieved. And um, unfortunately, for those who have that attitude, they can dig into biology, scientific studies, and always find something that backs up this view that their group uh, is more genetically qualified for a particular field than another. And if we're talking about physical strength, you know, I could agree that men are physically stronger on average than women. However, uh, the test, sh if you're going to be the firefighter or the Navy SEAL, should not be whether you're born male or female, but it's just, you know, how much can you carry on your back? How many miles can you hike? Let's just keep it to the task at hand. And so women have been proving themselves in, in STEM. Um, the average math score now is equivalent between males and females in, in grade school and high school. Uh, girls are taking as much or uh, enrolling in calculus in equal numbers as, as boys in high school. And even at the college level, it might surprise you to learn that over 40% of math majors are women in college today. And yet, when we get into the tech fields, their numbers are dropping down to more like 20, 18%. Um, so Damore and others would say, well, that's just because of, um, actually he, interestingly, he didn't focus on math ability, which I was very happy to see, but he did focus on, um, interests. And there's no question that when you give a bunch of high school kids a career interest survey, you're going to find that females are more interested in people type careers and males are more interested in so-called thing or object type careers, um, more, you know, construction and, and mechanics and uh, whereas females are more interested in, uh, you know, uh, service industry, you know, teaching, healthcare right. and so on. Um, and so he based it on these these interest surveys that you you do see a big sex difference and so we can't expect women are going to be interested in going into uh 
tech fields because they just, you know, it's not a matter of ability, it's a matter of interest. But as so many of us like to point out, these interest surveys all are infused with gender stereotyping because when a 15-year-old is filling out a career interest survey, they know damn well who is a construction worker, who is a nurse, who is a psychologist, who is a computer programmer. And they're at an age when they are extremely invested in their gender identity. If you don't believe me, go to a high school football game and <laughs> look at the, the role models we have. Um, and and so in, in many ways, um, those interest surveys are just uh, measures of your knowledge of gender stereotypes, the way you answer these uh, questions. And there's a handful of girls that are bucking the, the norm and a handful of boys that are bucking the norm, but by and large. So I don't think those interest surveys, I think we put too much credence in those interest surveys. And evolutionary bio, psychologists put lots of credence in those interest surveys. But if you actually stick, you know, 10-year-olds in a laboratory and give them a bunch of fun um, liquids to mix and and uh, compounds to explode. And you'll find that boys and girls and, and animals to dissect, you'll find that boys and girls both really like to get their hands on, on things and explore. Um, and particularly something like computer programming. When you think about what is computer programming, it's just stringing together a bunch of code in the, with the proper syntax and logical sequence to get a computer to do something. And technically, women outperform men in these verbal and linguistic skills. And so you might expect that, that women would be uh, better and maybe even enjoy that kind of thing more. So I think what's pretty clearly seen is that girls get turned off from computer science just because it's a very male, nerdy, stereotypical environment and they um, they don't feel comfortable and they want to find something that matches their their gender right. sense right. better. And, and that reminds me a bit of another, uh, it reminds me of, of a subculture like um, gaming. Um, you're talking about uh, you talk about the tech world and how it, it sends it feels more and more like um it feels like a boys club you know and that if if a girl wants to join in on that i mean it takes a it's a massive um undertaking uh i think it takes a certain level of confidence but not just confidence but having a, a hard shell and the ability to to deal with what it is to be a woman in a male dominated environment and i think it can go the other way as well uh, men who want to be in a field that's dominated by women they have to over they have to have a certain level of confidence in themselves and who they are and how they feel about themselves as a person um mm -hmm. and be able to deal with whatever you know can come their way um and the kind of pressures mm -hmm. and and uh maybe belittling or whatever comes with that right um right. and and that seems to be more than anything the reason why this there is this uh difference uh so i want to talk then about you, you do mention and you know, what research I've done into your work is that you do say, yes, there are subtle differences in the brain of a male and female prenatally and postnatally. So much of the differences then seem to be exaggerated and the development of that child is, is informed by child rearing practices um, and schooling as well. So do you think that, that the changes in a, the development of a boy or girl's personality um, 
is informed almost completely by experience. Uh, you know, this whole question of nature versus nurture, which I think is a, a false dichotomy. I think it's obviously a, a, conv- a complex combination of both when it comes to the development of a human being. Um, but do you think that when girls tend to be more attracted to certain types of interests or boys are attracted to certain types of interests and skill sets, that that is mostly informed by child-rearing practices and schooling, or do you think that that is something that is inherent in what it means to be biologically a male or female? Well, there's no question that genes are important in shaping our personalities, but men and women share almost all the same genes. There's a tiny handful that differ. You know, remember men have X chromosomes, women have X chromosomes, women have two X chromosomes. So all the X chromosome genes are the same. Men, the Y chromosome is a tiny little chromosome. It only has a handful of active genes on it. So genetically, a brother and sister are really no different than two brothers are from each other. So, uh, you know, our, our personalities have genetic load to them. You know, there people can be more extroverted, more uh, fearful. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of range of uh, personality dimensions. And I'm a neuroscientist, not a psychologist, so I can't rattle them off quite as easily. Sure, sure. But, um, you know, basically, wh- whatever trait you look at tends to have a pretty strong genetic load, like 40-50% of the, of the, of the trait is considered heritable for most most traits um but what i don't believe that interests are necessarily uh like that uh if you just look at um what's happened to girls since they have been given an opportunity and again you know the genetic if there's a genetic load to interests um boys and girls have largely the same genes the issues does testosterone play into that and i'll talk about that in a second but um Oh, yeah, yeah. If you look at what's happened to girls' interests in, say, the last 40 years, that we've just a little bit past 40 years of since Title IX was um, acted into law, which requires elimination of discrimination on the basis of sex in schools. And everybody knows Title IX most famously because girls were schools are supposed to put equal funding into uh, athletics for girls and provide as many spots on teams for girls as boys. Well, girls' athletics has grown tenfold over these 40 years. You have 10 times more girls playing on teams, sports teams. And guess what? Now girls are a lot more interested in sports than they were 40 years ago. That's obviously not a genetic change. So environment can have a uh, a big influence in my field. Uh, biology or neuroscience, we have a majority, it's a little bit over 50% of our PhD students are female. And that certainly wasn't the case when I started out. Um, I was definitely a minority in the in the mid-80s when I started grad school. So interests uh, have a cultural label to them. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, tagging that to genes is, is really... Uh, pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of scientific plausibility. Then we get to the issue of testosterone. So our genes differ very little. And by the way, um, genetic males, XY individuals who lack the receptor for testosterone, it's a disorder known as androgen insensitivity syndrome. Um, They actually are 
phenotypic females. So they look like women, they, they develop uh, breasts, they uh, have undescended testicles. Um, they, uh, it, sometimes you only become aware at puberty when this uh, woman stop, is, fails to menstruate, that she actually is an XY um, female. Um, and psychologically, XY females are indistinguishable from XX females. In other words, they're predominantly attracted to males. Their behavioral, you know, the, the, the empathy and verbal skills and so on resemble much more typical females than typical males, their toy preference and all that. So from that, that's really led us to conclude that in humans, genes don't do much at all with regard to genetic um, male-female differences. If there's anything biological, it's it's in hormones, and, and the big player here is testosterone, because both males and females have pretty high concentrations of estrogen floating around, but males have higher testosterone than estrogen. And testosterone's necessary to masculinize a baby's body before birth, so it it's once the testes in the baby boy, in the fetal boy, start putting out testosterone after about seven weeks of gestation, uh, they're responsible for differentiating the gonad into a testes. And then, uh, I I mean, once the test, yeah, once the testes is formed and starts putting out testosterone, they're responsible for differentiating the the penis and the other male reproductive uh, ducts into uh, a male type as opposed to a female type. So we know testosterone masculinizes the body. What does it do to the brain? That's been the, the, the million dollar question. And certainly in animals, we can do these studies where you manipulate testosterone and you can see changes in behavior, particularly um, rough and tumble play, which uh, young animals of pretty much every mammalian species like to wrestle and tumble. Males do it more than females in in. I guess all mammalian species, or at least in humans and other primates and rodents, you see two male pups doing more rough and tumble play than two females or than a male and a female. And when you treat females with testosterone before birth, they, rats and mice, they engage in more rough and tumble play. If you block it in males, they engage in less. So the issue is, does testosterone do that in humans? And the answer is probably a little bit. So we know that girls who are exposed to high levels of testosterone before birth, um, and this is due to a, so these are XX individuals, but they uh, have a single gene disorder that um, where there's a defect in their hormone production pathway. And they end up, instead of producing stress hormone, they produce way too much testosterone. And that testosterone uh, can masculinize their body before birth. So the girls are born with varying degrees of genital masculinization. They may may look much more like a boy than a girl. In other words, have a a little uh, micro penis and fused labia. Or they may be sort of in between with um, a a partially fused labia and uh, just an enlarged clitoris. Um, anyway, psychological studies of these girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, um, have indicated some shifting in their behavioral style and interests. That uh, the classic study put a four-year-old in a toy in a in a toy room with pink, you know, baby dolls and beauty set, 
and typical male toys like, uh, uh, you know, dump trucks and action figures. Boys and girls at four years of age will split their time about 80-20 in terms of playing with the boy things and playing with the girl things. And there's a lot of subtlety to that depending on who's watching and uh, if there's other kids in the room and so on. But they they do gravitate towards the so-called gender-appropriate toys. Kids with girls with CAH sort of fall in the middle. I guess they would look like tomboys or they play about equally with the girl stuff and the boy stuff. And based on that, plus the fact that girls with CAH seem to have a slightly higher um, aggressiveness, physical aggressiveness, um, has led to this idea, not, uh, you know, not revolutionary idea that prenatal testosterone may influence uh, these features of male typical behavior. So, um, you know, I think there certainly is a, a bias that that exposure to testosterone does before birth. But so far, people looking at newborn babies' brains have been unable to pluck out a clear correlation between prenatal testosterone and any particular structures. There are studies that report effects, but unfortunately, the, the handful of studies that have been done thus far are each reporting a different effect. And so I don't believe anything until I see it, you know, replicated across multiple labs. Um, and so well, the way I think of it is, you know, picture a little plant growing out, putting out its first branches. The testosterone just exerts a slight tip of one's behavior in one direction or another. And then it's really going to be the environment and practice and experience that determines how far that branch deviates to the left or the right. Um, And so the reason we know this, again, is because, um, you know, girls who are exposed and grow up with a bunch of brothers, for example, tend to be more athletic, tend to be more interested in in building toys and spatial sorts of activities. And uh, similarly, boys with older sisters tend to have stronger verbal verbal skills and perhaps relational uh, abilities. So we know that you're influenced by those around you. And to me, testosterone is just another drop in the bucket that is shaping those behaviors. But there's many, many other influences that uh, ultimately determine what your brain practices doing during childhood. Mm, okay. Uh, th- a question that just popped up in my in my mind when you were discussing testosterone and its uh, effect on the development of of the fetus and of children. So, would you say that almost as a default that that male well before they are identified as male or female, the fetus would almost be aside from the chromosomes that the body would would almost be in a default state where it leans almost more in the feminine or female direction. And that due to the input of testosterone, that that is really the thing that makes a, a body develop uh, male uh, genitalia and what we disguise, describe as, you know, f- male physical features. So I guess my question is, are we by default <laughs> uh, more uh, female? And then due to testosterone as, as an input, we develop male char- characteristics. Well, that was the traditional notion. Um, and to a superficial degree, that's true, because I told you these women with XY Uh, chromosomes, but who lack receptors for testosterone, do look phenotypically female. However, they're sterile. 
and they don't have uh, a uterus and ovaries and they can't uh, they can't have children. So complete female development clearly depends on um, two X chromosomes and um, a, a there's a sequence of gene expression that is involved in female development that doesn't happen in men or doesn't happen in boys. So in other words, making a a female is a more active process than we used to believe. Although superficially a person who is lacks testosterone exposure before birth will look, will look more female than male. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. And so th- this this issue, and when I was researching your work, I mean, this topic popped up in in my thinking. Um, and I don't know if you have any, if you don't have any opinions or any thoughts or views on this subject, I totally understand. I just want to ask you this right now, though. So right now, there's there's a lot of discussion about transgender rights, um, whether or not gender and gender identity is actually tied to your biological sex. Um, do you have any insight or input on this? I mean, we have uh, people who are born with male genitalia and look and seem, at least on the surface, in our at least in our culture, to exhibit male uh, physical characteristics, uh, but they identify as female, and they will go undergo, and oftentimes they undergo hormone therapy and other forms of surgery and other, other forms of uh, modification, body modification, in order to fit into this gender identity that they identify with. Is there any research that shows, because we're talking about male and female brains, is there any research that shows that people can be born with, born into what we would call a male body, but have neurologically... Uh, what would be maybe described as a female brain. I know we just discussed all the things that we did previously, but I guess I want to fit this idea of gender identity into maybe something that could be based in neurology or in the physiology of a brain. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And that a lot of people have wondered about that. Um, neuroscientists have been studying transgender people's brains for, for quite a while now, maybe 20 years. Um, and, Again, there were some splashy early studies that suggested that this tiny little zone of the hypothalamus or a structure called the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis um, differed in uh, transgender versus uh, cisgender people. However, um, there's now been about 20 studies, I think, of transgender people's brains and comparing them to cisgender. And by and large... um, because there's very little gender difference to begin with or sex difference, the differences are subtle. And, and again, they're all over the map with different studies finding different phenomena in male to female, female to male. And then apparently um, one's sexual uh, orientation also influences. So remember, gender and sexual orientation are completely different dimensions. You can be uh, You can be cisgender and be gay or straight. You can be transgender and be gay or straight for the gender that you identify with. And um, so uh, we see, depending on the study, subtle differences um, in all these groups, very little replication from study to study. And the last decent review, or the only decent review of this literature, I've, I've been reviewing it myself, but I haven't published it, but there's one published review in 2015. The basic conclusion from this was, we just need to abandon the idea of binary brain 
sex, period, that the studies of transgender individuals do not support the idea that there is such a thing as a male brain in a female body and vice versa. To me, um, gender is a spectrum. I, 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 you know, there's no question there is such a thing as masculinity and femininity and that, you know, more uh, X, X individuals are feminine and more XY are masculine, but it really is a spectrum and you can find any individual anywhere on the spectrum or some people even refer to it as a mosaic, that there are these dimensions of masculinity and femininity. I talked about gender identity and sexual orientation, which can be quite different, but you know, we also have things like uh, aggressiveness, uh, physicality, social sensitivity i mean we could we could chalk up um all kinds of things that we all know what's the masculine end what's the feminine end on the spectrum and you can find individuals that are a mosaic of those different things you know so you can find somebody i mean i i i consider myself very much of a mosaic brain i've always been a strong in math and science and a pretty pretty physical athletic but you know uh, get me around a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote my first book on babies. I'd like to think I'm very nurturing and socially sensitive. And so I, I think I'd end up on the feminine side of the spectrum in in in, in that zone. And so for each of us, um, there are many, many dimensions of masculinity and femininity. Cult, you know, cultural stereotypes have portray it as if it's this binary but um, our brains have to do all of these things. And so our brains have many, many circuits that for any individual are going to fall uh, towards the male, masculine, towards the feminine, or maybe kind of in between. Um, so I, we just really need to abandon this idea of binary brain sex. And that applies equally for cisgender as for transgender people. Right. Well, it's just, it's really fascinating that um, gender identity is not really tied to anything that we can um it's not really tied to brain structure right just like we have discussed so again i think it leaves it leaves us all in a space of maybe unknowing sorry Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah just unknowing of not exactly fully understanding ourselves very well and understanding how there is such uh, large variations in human beings and our identities and what we identify ourselves as regarding gender and that you can't just reduce it to something biological yeah no i mean by the same token you know we don't know the neural circuitry for being a republican or a democrat (laughs) we don't know the neural circuit for being a a christian versus a non-believer you know we know that there are there are brain activation differences uh in people with different groups but you know we're barely if the if the task is very discreet, if it's like reading words or, like I said, identifying facial expression, neuroscientists can map out the circuits for these things. But how do you map out a circuit for gender identity? I mean, what is gender identity? How do you put somebody in a scanner and um, activate their sense of gender identity? There, it's just it's not uh, an atomic brain activity and it's and so i think like any of our complex thought processes it evolves through life <laughs> you know our our ability to identify our tendency to identify um 
is going to be influenced by many factors, genetic and environmental. And interestingly, one thing about transgenderism, which I guess kind of surprised me, because I think the dogma is that you have a child born with the wrong brain for their body or vice versa. But it turns out that people transition at all ages and they don't necessarily they weren't necessarily um, dysphoric, gender dysphoric as children. It can come on at many stages of life, um, which, again, tells me it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's influenced by life experience and culture and, and uh, a lot of complex influences. Um, and, and frankly, we can't study it in animals either because gender is, by definition, cultural. And animals maybe have... A, a little bit of culture, but I would yeah. argue not to the extent that we do. Right. It doesn't get, they're not as, uh, maybe it's not as complex. Self-aware. Yeah. 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 Um, I just think this is a credibly fascinating subject because I, I don't know. I, I want people to be respected and I want to respect everybody's decisions in their life. I do have some, understandably, I, I think there is some, and I, I don't know if you have an opinion on this particular element of it, but you describe people who identify as one gender or the other. They might th- this comes up in different parts of their life, which indicates that it might be cultural um, in its origin or or something like that. But I think that because people are want to be so inclusive um, of transgender people like for instance if you have a child that's about maybe six or seven years old and it says a little boy physically uh, biologically a boy but they say i want to dress and be like my sister or like a girl and that parent may then think oh well they're just a transgender who wants to transition into to female I, i've heard of these cases where uh, children mm-hmm. are are basically undergo hormone therapy um, and, and, and so that's, that's the territory that I, I know it's a bit, it gets into a, a really politically sensitive, very difficult territory to discuss because in no way am I trying to be insensitive or trying to dismiss or say that people can, you know, do whatever they want with themselves and, and, and identify whatever they, uh, whatever they want uh, regarding their gender. Um, but I, I think we get into this territory of trying to understand how to deal with, say, children who are undergoing this process. Um, I, I just, I, again, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but that's really where my my confusion or interest uh, uh, kind of goes into because it, it it really concerns me when people maybe don't have a nuanced perspective or, or letting that child grow up and see how it all plays out, I guess, is maybe the way I would say that. Yeah, it's extremely difficult time um, in for like pediatric psychiatry and, and endocrinology um, trying to understand what to do with kids who are gender dysphoric that who express you know that they're not they they want to be uh, the gender other than their bio, uh, gonads, but um, I. And it's evolving. Um, the good news is there are protocols in place for a child who is, is you know, very persistent, very insistent uh, about their um, gender dysphoria that they, you know, a, a genetic boy who says, you know, I am a girl, I want to be a girl, I've always wanted to be a girl. 
there are protocols in place that involve delaying puberty and waiting till the child is at the age of consent, or I think maybe at 16 now, and allowing them to choose to initiate hormone therapy and so on. But generally, a very slow, the, the advice is to take it very slow because some kids do change their mind. Uh, uh, and so many social factors can, can influence that and, and complex psychological factors we really don't understand. Um, but I can tell you that it's extremely challenging for parents and and pediatricians these days. Um, we want to be affirming. We don't want to, um, shame children. And that was always the standard, uh, method for trying to condition children to accept their, um, biological gender. And a lot of kids were seriously traumatized by that. So I think we're in a better space that way in terms of parents and hopefully teachers and communities affirming uh, children's gender creativity. I like that term better than gender dysphoria. Kids are being creative about gender. <laughs> right. um, but, but you know, those are these are major changes to your body that may affect your fertility, uh, may affect your various aspects of your health. And so we need to be extremely cautious and, and take it slow uh, for how uh, children are treated medically. And, you know, stay tuned is all I can say, that yeah, maybe in yeah. another 10 or 20 years we'll have this sorted out better. But I, one maybe final thought is that, you know, none of this would be an issue if, if we did not have binary gender. If we all <laughs> dress the same, if we didn't have different pronouns and different names, and if we didn't line up the boys and girls separately or send them to different bathrooms, if kids' sports, frankly, frankly, could be gender integrated until puberty. There's, there's no difference in strength or ability between boys and girls before puberty. There's no reason to separate the soccer teams. We just make such a big damn deal about gender yes. that we force kids to pick a team. You know, mm-hmm. if gender truly is a spectrum and yet we only present them two teams, well, what do we do with all those kids that are kind of in the middle? Right. Um, and that may be a lot of kids, you know, that are not super masculine or not super feminine. And 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 we force them into these narrow boxes that really constrain the rest of their lives. It constrains the kinds of things they're going to practice. It constrains who they interact with, who they befriend, who they talk to, who they get close to. Uh, and, you know, to me, you know, gender is very limiting. So the ultimate solution to this would be if we could live in a truly, not gender neutral society, but gender free society, where it just wasn't a label that influenced anything in our lives. And, and then we wouldn't have kids I, or people, I think, as much wanting to uh, change their outward anatomy. Of course. Yeah. And I'm on board with that completely. I, I understand where you're coming from. And one last question. I, we've been talking for about 50 or so minutes. So I just want to ask you one last question. Um, for people that want to maybe get a concrete example of what you're discussing of a society that maybe is moving in that direction i would not say that the united states (laughs) at this time i mean maybe in some some sectors of our society that is the case but if there are any societies or any places that people can look to where these types of uh types of things are happening where you're starting to see more gender neutral or more gender 
I can't remember exactly how you said it, but but basically where gender was not enforced and gender stereotypes are not enforced in either mm-hmm. parenting or schooling. Is there anything that we can look to so that people can have maybe an example of, of what that looks like? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, they don't exist. Um, the closest I can tell you, and, and that's why when the evolutionary psychologists say, oh, look at these gender differences are universal across all societies, um, you know, well, that's because we have uh, we have gender labels and gender roles and, and gender hierarchy in every society. There are some that are more egalitarian than others, but still, uh, we don't have absolute equality in any in any existing nations. And um, the closest I can tell you is there's a family in Canada that got a lot of attention several years ago when they had their third child and they refused to reveal the child's gender to anybody. They named the baby Storm. And um, and there was a follow-up with this family a few years later when Storm was five. I think Storm is probably eight or nine now. The family has three children and uh, none of them identify as a cisgender. They're all kind of somewhere in the middle. And this these kids do not go to school. They are homeschooled or unschooled, they really haven't had much contact with the outside world, which, you know, one may have issue with that with good reason. But that's the closest I've seen to a gender-free rearing. And um, the kids look to be uh, pretty creative and pretty much uh, in the middle from what I could tell. Right. I was just trying to remember there was a Scandinavian country, I want to say Sweden, possibly, um, where maybe it was Finland, I can't remember where, but they, they were starting to implement these uh, educational policies where they were de-emphasizing gender differences in how they mm-hmm. raise children. So I, mm-hmm. I, uh, I just wanted to maybe give people some, some sort of example, but thank you for pointing people towards that. I, I will uh, look that, that information at myself regarding that family you just discussed. Um, so yeah, thank you for your time. I, I know that you are the author of a book. It's been almost 10 years since that book was published. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me look here at the title of that. It's uh, Pink Brain, blue brain, how small differences grow in troublesome gaps, and what we can do about it. I will provide a link to that book. Is there anything else that you are working on right now? Any other resources that people can look to to find out more about your work? um, And anything like that? Well, I've just published mostly, um, you know, peer reviewed uh, papers on gender similarity and a couple of brain structures. I'm I'm working on a big review right now. um, But um, I did. Um, I think the Atlantic article came out of a uh, a talk or a panel discussion I did at the Aspen Ideas Festival yes. uh, last week or the week before okay. that one can access through the Aspen Ideas Festival. I think all those videos are um, are available to the public. So okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the title was actually "Pink Brain, Blue Brain" of our talk. Okay. Yeah, and I will. Uh, I'll provide links to your website, to your book, to that talk. Um, and everything in the description of this episode when I release it. So, Lise, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights, and thank you for the work that you've been doing. Um, I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Patrick. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude, but take it!